Hi, my name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot audio ground school podcast hello 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 welcome into the audio ground school podcast my name is nick smith founder creator of part-time pilot this is the podcast where i go through each and every lesson of the part-time pilot online ground school for private pilots every single lesson i read through it and i add a little bit to it i had some examples some some context some stories for you guys in audio for free. So if you're just joining us for the first time, thank you so much. If you're a longtime listener and you've been with us for now 57 episodes, thank you for being such a loyal listener. Now, if it is your first time, before we get started, for the last like five episodes or so, we introduced a couple new sections, or I guess uh, you would call them segments of the podcast. One is where I read off reviews of the show. This one helps us get more seen and more visible when people leave us a review. And then some people like to hear their review, you know, I think it's cool when you get to hear your review on the podcast. I think last I looked, it's over 170,000, 170,000 downloads. So if you get on there, you'll be heard by a lot of people, which is really, really cool. So anyways, let's get to that. We're going to start with the segment on reading our reviews. So if you want to have it read off your review and you have Apple Podcasts, please leave the review there. I'll check there first. If not, you can go to trustpilot.com and just search part-time pilot and leave us a review there. First review I want to read is from, I think it's Ollie Gregor. So Ollie says, five stars, part-time pilot is a game changer. Enrolling in part-time pilot program was the best decision and so affordable. The incorporation of visual, verbal, and kinesthetic methods in each lesson was fundamental to me to really understand the materials. These are complex subjects and having explanations from multiple angles is the key to success. I go through one to two lessons a week, which is a perfect amount so that I can still balance my full-time job and my flight training. Nick has created a course that is a game changer. That was a fantastic review by Ollie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate those kind words and I'm glad you're enjoying the course. So thank you so much. Here is one by the second one is a five star Brendan Harris. Nick is very responsive. Nick is very responsive. It's like having your own personal teacher at your fingertips. His teaching style really helps me understand the information without it going over my head. The layout of the online ground school is clean, organized, and easy to digest. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for the review. And I appreciate that you see our effort to be very reachable. So one of the things we wanted to stand out among the other online ground schools is one to, you know, have new ways to consume our content, right? So video, written quizzes, flashcards, and like audio, like this podcast, so that you could always sort of have a way to consume no matter what you were doing. That would help you when you're busy with a full-time job or kids or whatever, help you achieve your dream that way. And also we wanted to be very, very approachable and responsive to be able to be different from the rest of the online ground schools. We want to be able to, you know, respond right away, give in-depth responses, even make personal videos, just be there to be, you know, your mentor throughout this entire process. Cause we understand that these concepts need some explanation. We can't just, you know, give you one explanation and then say, all right, if you don't understand it, then good luck finding the information. We want to be there to not only give you multiple explanations, like like one of the reviews said, but also be there to ask questions and provide even more in-depth explanation. So I'm glad that both those reviews recognize those things and people are seeing that. So thank you guys for the reviews. And that has been the listener reviews. Again, if you want your review read off, you can leave them at trustpilot.com, then search for part-time pilot, or you can go to 
I don't think on Spotify you can leave reviews. You might be able to. I think you can leave a star review, which would be much appreciated because it gets us seen. The more we're seen, the more, you know, opportunities we'll have. And I've already pledged that all the ad revenue I'm going to get in the future from this podcast is going to go to the scholarship. So I'm working on some things now. But anyway, so the more, the bigger we get, the more we'll be able to do for you guys. But if you can't leave it on Spotify, go on to Apple Podcasts if you have that and leave us a review there and we'll read it out. So thank you. All right, let's get to the next segment, which is listener questions. And we got a couple questions from the Facebook study group. So let's hear those today. So this first question is from Matthew. And I thought it it has a lot to do with the subjects we're covering right now, cross-country planning and calculations. I thought it was a good question to cover. Matthew basically said, having a bit of, you know, misunderstanding or blank out moment when I use the pressure, the formula for pressure altitude, which is elevation or altitude, right? That's not pressure altitude. Elevation plus 1000 times the quantity of 29.92 minus X, where X is your current altimeter setting. So we covered this already, well, you know, in the climb performance, we told you that, you know, you have to have pressure altitudes. This was in the last episode. You're basically making two calculations when you come up with climb performance. You're making, you know, a calculation at where you take off from and then where you end your climb in, and then you're finding the difference. Whenever you find a difference or you make any sort of calculation or you add or subtract things, you have to have the same units and you have to be working off the same reference or that answer is going to be completely wrong. So that means altitude we use for, you know, our takeoff altitude has to be the same type of altitude that we use for our cruise altitude. So in aviation, it's just we use pressure altitudes. That's what we do because that's how all the performance charts are set up. So we start with pressure altitude. If we start with pressure altitude for our takeoff altitude, if we start with pressure altitude for our cruise altitude, then when we calculate those numbers, you know, cruise performance numbers, we can find the difference between the two. And we know that it's the difference it takes to travel between those altitudes, AKA the distance to climb. So that's why we, we just start with a pressure altitude and that's a reference altitude. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but how those charts are set up, the first thing you do is you match a pressure altitude with a temperature. Essentially, what you're doing here is you're finding the density altitude on these climb performance crews. It doesn't tell us, you know, that's not our end goal is a density altitude. But that's that first step is converting to density altitude, which we do that because, again, density altitude is all about performance. That's what affects our aircraft's performance. So if we're using a performance chart, we want to use density altitude. So we got to start with pressure altitude because that's a reference. Then we go to density altitude. And then we find our performance from there in those charts. So that's why we come up with pressure altitude. Now, there's a couple ways to do that. There's lookup tables. And this is what you'll see. I think it's on figure seven or eight of the FAA Airman Testing Supplement, right? The figure book that you're going to use on your exam, the one that all our quizzes and practice test questions reference. It's seven or eight. It's got a chart to convert to density altitude. And then it's got a table to convert to find a pressure altitude conversion factor. So the pressure altitude conversion factor is essentially a part of this equation. It's just the, so again, this equation is to get a pressure altitude, you take your elevation or whatever altitude you want to convert to a pressure altitude and you add it to the quantity of 1000 times the difference of 29.92 and your actual altimeter setting. That 1000 times the difference of standard altimeter setting and your altimeter setting, that answer of that part of the equation right there is the same thing as a pressure altitude conversion factor, which you'll find on table of conversion factors on either, I think figure seven or eight of the FA airman testing stuff. So that's all that equation is doing. It's just that table in equation format. Now the table is a little bit more accurate because these are measured numbers right within the atmosphere. And the equation is more of an approximation. It's like a linear approximation and you know, real life isn't quite linear. So this equation is a estimation, but as I said, when we first introduced this equation on the podcast, it's good enough to get you where you want to be, where you need to be for the FA written for cross country planning or whatever. With that said, I would use the table on the FA written. That's just me just to be safe because that's what they expect you to use not this equation, but the equation, you can try it out. It's going to give you very, very, very close, probably within a percent or two of your answer, which should be close enough. Anyways, Matt's question was essentially like, do we add or subtract that number from elevation for starting pressure altitude? And the pressure altitude is used only for altimeter setting and converting to density altitude for performance information, correct? So 
Matt here is like all of us, really confused about all the different altitudes. Now, we, again, we covered this in the podcast, but it can still be really confusing. So that's why I wanted to cover this question here. So I kind of mentioned it before, going back to why do we use pressure altitude? What is it for? I think that's what Matt is really getting to. Well, for one, aircraft that fly a lot higher than us, they use it above 18,000 feet. The FAA has a rule above 18,000 feet. Everyone sets their altimeter to 29.92, which is, that means you're displaying a pressure altitude on your altimeter. That way, all the planes up there, all the high speed, big planes are working off the same altimeter value and they'll be able to have better separation that way. Also up there at 18,000 feet, the atmosphere doesn't change as much. So that's another reason that you can just have a reference altitude. But below, we use the current pressure setting of, you know, that's measured in the air you know, with a barometer. So that's what we use for our pressure setting. But again, pressure altitude for, that's one of the uses of pressure altitude when you're above 18,000 feet. How we use pressure altitude, so we don't use that, we use the actual altimeter setting. We don't, we fly with an indicated altitude, not a pressure altitude. How we use pressure altitude is what I mentioned before for calculations, our reference starting point for calculations. So we're always coming from the same point, you know, whether it's climb performance, cruise performance, whatever, we're always using a pressure altitude. We're starting that with there because our charts are built off of it. We start with pressure altitude, we match it with the temperature, that converts us to a density altitude, and that is what we care about when in terms of performance. So why pressure altitude? That is the reason why. The other thing Matt, I think, was getting to was kind of how you use that formula. Again, the value, that pressure altitude correction factor that I said was the part of the formula where it's just a thousand times the quantity 29.92 minus the current uh, altimeter setting, that whole altimeter correction factor, that could be a negative number or a positive number. It's a negative number if the actual altimeter setting is higher than standard because 29.92 minus a bigger number will give you a negative number. You times that by a thousand and you have a negative number. So in that case, you would have your elevation plus a negative number. That would be essentially elevation minus that number, right? Plus a negative is the same thing as subtract. And then if the actual altimeter setting is lower than standard, 29.92 minus a lower number is gonna give you a positive number. Positive number times 1000 is also a positive number. So now we're elevation plus a positive number. So that's just, that's just normal addition, right? So I think that was Matt's other question. Like, do we subtract? So it's always a plus sign. It's always elevation plus the altimeter conversion factor but that conversion factor can be plus or minus. All right, so that one went a little bit longer than I wanted to, so we're just gonna do one listener question today, but hopefully you guys found it helpful. Let's now get on to our lessons. Okay, so we're continuing on our section on cross-country planning. So if you're in the online ground school, which if you're not, I highly recommend you do, you get lifetime access, and every two years as a private pilot, you have to do ground training and show that you know the ground knowledge so you have to have a refresher course anyway so that that's what the lifetime access is kind of one of the reasons it's there also plans change and you you may need it again right so you'll have lifetime access but also while you listen to this you'll be able to see our visuals our mnemonic devices our videos and do our quizzes so if you're following along you want to go to the course step one private pilot online ground school so the online ground school private pilot lessons that's the step one course and then go to section 12 for cross-country planning. And we are now on lesson nine, distance to descend to landing destination airport traffic pattern altitude. So in lesson eight, we did distance to climb. Now we're finding the distance it'll take us to descend from cruise to the traffic pattern of where we are going to land at. And then lesson 10, which we'll probably get to today, is on airspeeds. I wanna review airspeeds, just like I kinda talked about altitudes you know, there's a bunch of different altitudes, true, absolute, indicated, pressure, density, same kind of thing for airspeed. So I want to review that before we start calculating airspeeds for our cross-country plan. But at this point, we've been keeping a mental nav log through all these lessons, through lessons one through eight of section 12 on cross-country planning. We've been keeping kind of a nav log. We started off with plotting our course, coming up with our checklist for each point, right? So each row is a checkpoint, sorry, not a checklist, checkpoint. Then we came up with the altitudes by looking at our sectional chart, came up with the altitudes we'll wanna be at each checkpoint. Then we, we measured the distances. We got a cumulative distance. So we calculated this for each row and each one of these is a column. So distance is a column, total distance is the next column of the nav log. Then we estimated the fuel that we would need using that total distance. This way we would know 
before we do everything, if we need to make a fuel stop or not. Then we measured our courses. So we got true courses. We found our variation at each checkpoint. And then we're able to take variation and true course to get our magnetic course. Then we gathered winds and temperatures for all our checkpoints. And then that gave us the ability to start calculating performance because we need temperature to get a density altitude to calculate performance as we talked about. So then we started calculating our distance to climb. And we do this first, we find the distances it'll take. That way we can kind of slightly adjust our checkpoints so that we have checkpoints that are fully either climb or descent and then checkpoints that are fully cruise. So that way it makes it easier for us here in the future that we can calculate a whole entire leg of flight as either climb or either cruise. And when you reach that checkpoint, let's say it's like a lake or something, you know that you should be at the top of your climb or the top of your descent. It's a visual indicator to, hey, I should start my descent or, hey, I should stop my climb. I should be around my cruise altitude. And if you're not, then you know, hey, well, maybe I'm climbing a lot slower than expected. My performance isn't as good. That's a good thing to know about your aircraft and how much time it's going to take to travel where you want to go. All right, so that was a quick review of everything we've been through. Let's get on to now calculating distance to descent to landing, destination, airport, traffic pattern altitude. That's lesson nine. All right, so at this point, your plan should have known altitudes for every checkpoint except the distance phase of your flight. To find these values, we will perform a similar calculation as our climb performance, except this time we use a different chart. This time we use the fuel time and distance to descend chart. And then if it's like a, there's some aircraft might have a chart, some aircraft might have a table. Fuel time and distance to climb chart in your, sorry, this will be found in your approved flight manual or POH. So for your aircraft, when you're actually calculating a cross country flight plan, you'll want to need, have the a approved AFM or POH for your aircraft. For descent, we do not need to record values for fuel or time. We're gonna calculate fuel and time just like we do cruise. We're, I'm gonna tell you why a little bit later. But the reason why is it's a little bit more conservative. It's a little bit harder to calculate descent performance for fuel and time. So we just call it the same as cruise. It get, makes us a little bit more conservative and a little bit easier for us to do. And then if we, you know, get stuck in the pattern before landing, we have that extra fuel and time that we baked into our calculations. Like cruise, the time values can be calculated later uh, with the wind data for more accuracy. So once we have ground speed or the wind data to get ground speed, we can calculate the time value. The fuel consumed during descent is always assumed the same as cruise, again, to be conservative. And we'll calculate that a bit later. We won't technically burn as much fuel during descent as we would in cruise, but by assuming that we will, we will give ourselves some extra margin in a low, low on fuel scenario during flight. So first we need to find the total distance needed to descend just as we did for climb. So you wanna find your cruise temperature on the bottom axis on the left side of the fuel time and distance to descend chart. So again, we're, we're using a Piper Cherokee chart, which we have an example of here in the online ground school. Now, just to, to mention, the FAA written exam does not ask you to calculate a descent performance. This is only for check ride and flight lesson planning. So this, again, our ground school goes a little bit above and beyond most ground schools or test preps to just kind of help you kind of memorize the test questions or just teach you the stuff the test questions go off. We teach you everything to be a competent pilot and kind of prepare you for your check ride and all that stuff. So that's just a side note. But anyway, so we're using a Piper Cherokee example performance chart here. So we're going to find our cruise temperature on the bottom axis. We're going to draw a vertical line to our cruise pressure altitude. Again, we want to use pressure altitudes for both of our calculations here. At this point, we draw a horizontal line. So at the point where they intersect, so our temperature intersects the pressure altitude, a horizontal line all the way to the far right of the chart. This is the same procedure we did for the climber performance chart. Where the horizontal line crosses our distance curve, so it's gonna cross, there's gonna be a curve for distance, fuel, and time, just like the cruise performance chart. Everywhere that horizontal line crosses that, we draw a straight line down. So everywhere our horizontal line crosses each of those curves, we draw a straight line down, and then we read off the value at the bottom axis for each of those lines, and that's our fuel time and distance for our cruise. So here we're only interested in distance because again, we're gonna calculate fuel and time differently. And then we're gonna repeat these steps for our landing airport elevation, but instead of using the elevation of the landing airport, we wanna use the pressure altitude of the expected traffic pattern you found earlier when gathering information. So this is, what I do, is it going to be wildly different if you use the, the elevation instead of the traffic pattern altitude? No, 
But I feel like the destination for me first is the traffic pattern altitude for my descent. Then after that, I can put in some fuel and time for my traffic pattern at a different point. Because that, again, we're not descending at that point. We're kind of in a holding pattern type thing. So you still want to foresee how much fuel and time you might use in that pattern. It's probably not going to be a lot, but just in case you get stuck in the pattern, you want to account for that. So anyways, it's not going to be too different if you just calculate a descent to the airport elevation as if you're coming in for straight on landing. But I like to do it to the traffic pattern altitude and then add a little bit of fuel and time for that traffic pattern, the time we're in the traffic pattern. All right, so let's, for example, let's say we have your airport elevation is 250 feet and the traffic pattern altitude is 1,000 feet AGL. So you would want to use 1,250 feet for MSL for your starting altitude. You want to convert that to a pressure altitude and then you can use it in this chart. So same thing. We match our temperature with that pressure altitude that we got from 12,050, which is our traffic pattern altitude. We find where that intersects. We draw a line over to the distance curve. Then we find uh, where that intersects. We draw a straight line down and we read off the distance value. We now have a distance value from when we did this with our cruise altitude. And now we have a distance value where we just did this with our traffic pattern altitude. Again, both pressure altitude. We can now subtract one from the other, find the difference between these two values. And that is going to give us the distance it takes to descend from our cruise altitude to our traffic pattern altitude. And that distance is what, what we're here for. All right, so let's, so this gives you the total distance you will need to descend to your landing airport altitude. This tells you which checkpoint you need to start your descent at. So just like we did with climb, let's say we have, let's say our last checkpoints are checkpoints six and seven, okay? And it takes 11 nautical miles to get from six to seven. And then after that, it's 13 nautical miles to get from seven to our landing airport, right? So 11 nautical mile leg of flight, then 13 nautical mile leg of flight, and then we're at our destination. Let's say our distance to descend is 17 nautical miles. So that means somewhere between checkpoints six and seven, we will need to start our descent to be able to be at the altitude we wanna be and time it perfectly by the time we get to our destination. Now, a lot of pilots who have flown, they know that, hey, that's not a big deal. If we're a little bit high, you know, we can just do a forward slip, we can, you know, slow down, you know, deploy flaps earlier and lose some altitude. There's, there's a lot of, you know, kill power. There's a lot of ways to lose altitude quicker if you need to. But I like to not have that to worry about. I like to be on altitude when I need to be on altitude so I can focus on the next step, which is the traffic pattern and the landing. The more things you add to your plate as a pilot, the harder it's going to make the next task you have to do. So in this scenario, we would have to start our descent somewhere between checkpoints six and seven to get there. But why don't we just change check the location of checkpoint seven, we just move it back such that it's 17 nautical miles away from our destination airport. This way, we know that at checkpoint seven, that's when we start our descent. So if you find a visual on the ground, great. If you can't find a visual, you can maybe use a VOR radial or crossing of two VOR radials or something like that. When you reach that, that's when you start your descent. So that's what I like to do. I like to just go back to our plan, slightly adjust those values. I try not to change the course values too much so I don't have to re-measure uh, the courses, but I still do. Uh, so you just you know find a good checkpoint, make it 17 nautical miles away, for example, and then you know just re-measure re you know, those two courses and distances and you're good to go. And now it's gonna be a lot easier going forward. All right, so let's do a example, a distance to descend to destination airport traffic pattern altitude example. So let's assume that our cruise pressure altitude is 8,500 feet, and we are landing at an airport with an elevation of 1,377 feet and traffic pattern altitude of 1,000 feet above ground, AGL. We need the altitude of our TPA to be in terms of mean sea level altitude and not above ground altitude. Therefore, we add the elevation of our landing altitude to AGL of our traffic pattern. But wait, in order to use the altitude in our fuel time distance ascent chart, we need it as a pressure altitude. So we have 1,000 feet for traffic pattern altitude and 13,700 feet, or sorry, 1,377 feet for our elevation. So if we add those together, we get 2,377 feet. And then now we convert that to a pressure altitude. And we're gonna use that handy dandy 
equation, which says, you know, that altitude, 2,377 feet plus the quantity of 1,000 times 29.92 minus our actual altimeter setting. So in this example, I said, let's say our altimeter setting is 29.92. It's perfectly standard. So that's going to make our pressure altitude conversion factor zero because 29.92 minus 29.92 is zero times zero by a thousand. That's zero. Then add 2,377 to zero. You get 2,377. So in this case, there is no conversion factor to pressure altitude because our actual pressure is standard pressure. All right. So I thought that might be a good example to kind of drive in the point of what a conversion factor is and where it comes from. It comes from when the pressure is not standard. Okay, so in this case it is standard, so we don't have one. All right, so there, so our TPA in terms of pressure altitude is 2,377 feet. Therefore, we need to descend from our cruise pressure altitude of 8,500 feet in this example to our TPA pressure altitude of 2,377 feet. Now, I just assumed in this example that our cruise pressure altitude is 8,500 feet. But if you were using like an MSL based off your chart, right? So let's say you looked at your chart and you wanted to be 8,500 feet and that's going to be your indicated altitude that you want to fly at. You'll have to convert that number to a pressure altitude. So again, in this case, because our actual timber setting is 29.92, it's exactly standard. We have no conversion factor, so it's going to be the same. 8,500 feet. But I just assumed that our pressure altitude was 8,500 feet. I didn't do a correction from an altitude to a pressure altitude. I didn't show that out. I just assumed it. And then it happened to be so because our altimeter setting was 29.92. Hopefully that makes sense. Basically what I'm saying is you have to have both altitudes in terms of pressure altitude. So you have to convert both of them using that equation. Let's continue. Assume that the temperature at our cruise altitude, per the winds and temperatures aloft forecast data that we put in our nav log, say it's 8 degrees Celsius and the temperature at our landing airport traffic pattern elevation altitude is interpolated between the ground temperature of 20 degrees and a 6,000 feet altitude temperature of 12 degrees. So we basically say, okay, we have from our winds aloft temperature of 12 degrees that we can write down at 6,000 feet. And then we know the ground forecasted temperature of 20 degrees. So we can interpolate for our value of 2,377. So that's about a third of the way there. So you can use your head, which I'm doing here, or you can actually use the interpolation equation, which again, it's just linear interpolation. So it's about a third of the way from 20 to 12, right? And we're going up in elevation to get from the surface to traffic pattern altitude. So that means it's going to get colder. So it's going to go from 20 down to 12 by the time we get to 6,000 feet. So if we are at 2,377 feet, again, that's about a third of the way. So a third of the way from 20 to 12 is about 17 degrees or 18 degrees. I have 18 degrees here in this example. So I just, again, I was probably conservative. The hotter the temperature, the more conservative. So I used 18 degrees, but you can use the exact interpolation equation if you want, or you can kind of just, like I did, it's about a third of the way, so I'm gonna use about a third or whatever you wanna do. Okay, so first, use the following steps outlined in the picture below. So we have a picture here, so if you're following along, again, I highly recommend it because you can see this picture. I have each step labeled with a red arrow and a note next to each arrow of what I'm doing. But what we're gonna do is we're going to use the fuel time and distance ascent chart, just like we did before with these values. So we're gonna first start at our cruise altitude, our pressure altitude of 8,500 and our temperature of eight degrees. So we draw a straight line up from the bottom axis at eight degrees to our pressure altitude curve of 8,500 feet. At this intersection, we draw a straight horizontal line over until it intersects with the distance curve. Where it intersects the distance curve, we draw a line down to the bottom axis and then we read off the value on the bottom axis, which in this case is a distance of 20 nautical miles using again this Piper Cherokee descent performance chart. It's going to be different depending on what kind of performance chart you're using, what kind of aircraft you're using for that performance chart. All right, so now we do this again, but this time we do it at our traffic pattern altitude or pressure altitude of 2,377 feet and our temperature we estimated at that altitude of 18 degrees Celsius. So we find 18 degrees Celsius. We draw a straight line up to 2,377 where they intersect. We draw a straight horizontal line over until it intersects the distance curve. From there, we draw a straight line down and then we read off our value. 
So we, there we get a distance value of eight nautical miles. So now we have a distance value from when we did this calculation at cruise of 20 nautical miles and a distance value when we did this calculation at traffic pattern altitude of eight nautical miles. So we take the difference, we find the difference, 20 minus eight equals 12 nautical miles. We now have the distance to descend from a pressure altitude of 8,500 at cruise to our traffic pattern altitude of 2,377. And we use this value to either create a checkpoint to be 12 nautical miles from our landing airport or choose a checkpoint within one to two nautical miles of this distance to be our start of descent checkpoint. Again, the, this last line, I threw this in there because like if your checkpoint is already like one to two nautical miles away from being 12 nautical miles away, right? It's about perfect. It's just one or two nautical miles off. That's fine. That's still close enough. Again, we can do things like lower power, add flaps, you know, fly slower. We can do things to descend faster, you know, do a forward slip or something. So that should be no problem. But again, you want to be as accurate as possible because the more you plan now, the less you're going to have to do and, you know, change on the fly while you're flying. That'll be more of a mental stress on you, more of a mental load. And, you know, you'll get stressed and you, you might, you know, perform not as well on your landing or something like that. I always like to try and do everything I can beforehand to make my flying a lot easier. All right. So that is the example. We have a video, which I'll put in the show notes showing exactly how I did this. So check that out. And that's the step. That's the lesson on distances sent to landing. Let's move on and we'll cover airspeeds before we, you know, we're going to do a review of airspeeds. That's going to be in the next lesson before we get on to calculating airspeeds. So we're going to kind of take a bit of a reprieve from calculations and building out our nav log and cover just some things on airspeeds before we get on because we have to know, we have to understand these different airspeeds before we start calculating them. So let's go and do that right now. Okay, here we are with lesson 10 of section 12 on airspeeds. We are now prepared to calculate the airspeeds we expect for each leg of flight with the altitudes, winds, and temperatures we now know. We found the distances to climb, to descend. We have our checkpoints perfectly spaced out. We have our altitudes, distances, courses. Now we need to know our speeds. There are several kinds of airspeeds, three of which we will use in our planning. Indicated airspeed, true airspeed, and ground speed. Our ultimate goal is to get our ground speed because with ground speed, we can use our distances and determine the time it takes to reach that distance. In order to get ground speed, however, we need to first calculate our true airspeed. So essentially, we need a true airspeed to get to a ground airspeed. How do we get true airspeed? Well, that's what we're going to talk about here in the next couple lessons. But let's review what each of these even are. So before we do that, let's review what the different airspeeds are indicated airspeed. This has units of not indicated airspeed or KIAS. This is the speed that you read off of your airspeed indicator, just like indicated altitude. It's as simple as that. It's what you read off your airspeed indicator. And therefore, it's the speed that you use to fly. This airspeed is uncorrected for variations in atmospheric density, installation air, and instrument air. So it's not accurately measuring how fast you're traveling over the ground or through you know, through the air. It's just an indicated airspeed. It's an estimation that has some errors in it. V-speeds listed in the POH AFM, Pilot Operating Handbook Approved Flight Manual, are based on indicated airspeeds. So these are like, you know, VSO, VS1, you know, the stall speeds, VX, VY, the climb speeds, you know, VNE, never exceed, all those types of things that we covered back when we covered the airspeed indicator. So those are all based off indicated airspeeds, which makes sense because you're reading it off the airspeed indicator. The next one is calibrated airspeed. Now I didn't mention this above, but calibrated airspeed is indicated airspeed corrected for errors in your airspeed indicator or pedostatic system. So we wanna take those like instrument installation errors and get them out of there. And then we're only left with atmospheric errors, right? Like temperature and density errors that are affecting our airspeed indicator. So to do that, so that's essentially what we're doing as we step through these airspeeds. We're starting with our best estimation using our indicator, right? That's indicated airspeed. And then we're gonna get rid of the installation equipment errors with to get to calibrated airspeed. And then from calibrated airspeed, you guessed it, we're gonna go to true airspeed using 
you know, getting rid of the errors from changes in temperature and density. So that's why they call it true airspeed. It's the truly the airspeed you're traveling through air mass that you're traveling in. So it's corrected for that specific air mass. So that's ultimately what we want to get to. I'm getting ahead of myself. So what is calibrated airspeed? Again, it is indicated airspeed corrected for errors in your airspeed indicator or pedostatic system. Instrument and installation errors are highest at low speeds. Pilots generally only worry about calibrated airspeed when calculating stall speeds. For higher speeds, the error is small and usually negligible. In our flight planning, we will assume the errors are negligible and say that indicated airspeed equals calibrated airspeed. If you wish to calculate calibrated airspeed, the AFM POH for your aircraft will have a conversion chart based on indicated airspeeds and aircraft configuration. The figure below that we show in the chart is an example from a Cherokee Warrior of airspeed system calibration. There's indicated airspeed on the x-axis and on the y-axis calibrated airspeed. You simply find your indicated airspeed on the x-axis, go up to where the curve is, and there's a curve for flaps up or flaps down. You find that curve, and then you look on the y-axis, the value, and that's your calibrated airspeed. So as you can see, in a lot of the speeds that we fly from like 70 knots to 120 knots, it is very, very similar indicated and calibrated airspeed. Like I'm looking at 100 knots indicated airspeed, and it says it's about 99.5 knots. So that's less than half a percent difference. And then when we get to 120, it's about 118. Again, that's like less than that's like a percent and a half maybe off so they're very very close so that's why as private pilots and you can ask your instructor this and the examiners on the fa check ride they're okay with this as long as you explain why you did what you did simply just say look i just went i assumed the indicated airspeed was the same as calibrated airspeed the air is very negligible in our aircraft at certain speeds at the certain speeds that we fly so that should be a completely acceptable answer. So that's why you might not see calibrated airspeed a lot talked about. But on your, if you look at your E6B calculator, you'll see that it talks about calibrated airspeed to convert to true airspeed. So this is, we're just gonna use indicated airspeed for calibrated airspeed. We're gonna assume that they're the same thing. That way we can use our E6B calculators to get from an indicated airspeed to a true airspeed. We essentially say indicated airspeed is 100, calibrated airspeed is 100, now we can do calibrated airspeed of 100 slash indicated airspeed to our true airspeed. All right, so that corrects us for instrument errors, but we're gonna assume they're negligible in this case. Next one is true airspeed. True airspeed is the speed of the aircraft through the air, keywords through the air. So we've talked you know, in the weather section, there's different air masses. There's you know fronts where two air masses collide. If you fly, through a front, you're going to fly from one air mass to another air mass. Your true airspeed is going to change because one air mass might be very dense, right? So there's a lot of molecules hitting your aircraft, creating lift, going through the pedostatic probe, and then you might get into the next air mass. It might be way less dense where a lot less molecules are traveling through that. So we want the accurate depiction of how fast we're actually traveling through those molecules in that air mass, and that's what true airspeed is. True airspeed is calibrated airspeed corrected for non-standard atmospheric conditions of temperature and pressure. In order to understand this, we need to understand how an airspeed indicator works. And again, we covered this in our section on aircraft systems back in like the first few episodes. An airspeed indicator uses static pressure and pitot or ram pressure to find their differences and calculate an air velocity from this difference. This difference is called the dynamic pressure, and it uses that dynamic pressure to get a velocity. In order to calculate dynamic pressure and the air velocity, you need to assume certain characteristics of the air, such as density, right? Such as you know temperature, pressure, which make up density. So we assume our airspeed indicator assumes that the density in the air is standard in that calculation, but it's not. So that's why our indicated altitude is not giving us our true altitude. When the atmospheric conditions are non-standard, the air temperature, pressure, and density are all different than standard, and the indicated airspeed does not represent the correct value of velocity. This is where true airspeed comes in. Now, some aircraft, some fancy-dancy aircrafts, have true airspeed indicators. They measure, they take you know, pressure and temperature. I think then they calculate a density using pressure and temperature, probably some estimation of the ideal gas law. And then they use that density to 
correct the indicated airspeed that they're getting to a true airspeed. So they do that for you and that's really nice to have. It's another piece of information. Is it required? No, but some aircraft do do that. I said do do. <laughs> All right, so continuing on. True airspeed can be calculated by knowing the atmospheric conditions at a specific altitude using an E6B or performance charts from an approved AFM POH of your aircraft. For our flight planning, we can assume that the indicated airspeed again is the same as calibrated airspeed and essentially convert indicated airspeed straight to true airspeed. All right, the last one is ground speed. Ground speed is the speed of the aircraft over the ground. So how is this different than true airspeed? Okay, I want you to think of traveling through an air mass that is moving at you at 20 knots. So let's say you're traveling 100 knots and you're moving through an air mass that is traveling in the opposite direction at 20 knots, AKA the wind is 20 knots in your face. You have a headwind of 20 knots. That's what it, essentially an air mass moving in the opposite direction as you is. It's just wind, a headwind of 20 knots. So in this case, so you're traveling through the air at you know 100 knots, your true airspeed is 100 knots, but over the ground, you're not covering ground as fast as your true airspeed would lead you to believe because the wind is kind of holding you back. It's pushing you back. Have you ever looked up at you know an aircraft and thought that it was like barely moving? That's probably because it's up there flying with a really strong headwind. It has enough true airspeed, right? It's like, it's almost like it's flying in a wind tunnel. Enough air from the wind, the headwind is flowing over the wings. So you're getting enough lift because your true airspeed is enough, but your ground speed is crappy because you're flying you're going against, you know, it's like a salmon swimming upstream. It's the same thing. It's like swimming upstream, right? You can exert a ton of pressure and you can be a super fast swimmer. But when you start going upstream, it takes a long time and a lot of effort to actually gain any ground because you're swimming against the current. That's the same exact thing here. So in that example, when we have a 100 knot true airspeed, but a 20 knot headwind, our ground speed is actually only 80 knots. So that means we're only covering 80 nautical miles in an hour as opposed to 100 nautical miles because of that headwind. So that's the difference between true airspeed and ground speed. Ground speed is a measure of how fast we cover nautical miles on the ground, where true airspeed is how fast we travel through that air and how much our... Here's a good way to really think of true airspeed and think of what the wings feel, right? The wings feel that headwind coming at you. They think, hey, we got enough air. We're traveling enough through this air through these air molecules to get enough lift so we're fine we're, we're getting enough lift but it's not the same as traveling over the ground hopefully that makes sense with a couple of those examples so what we need to do now is determine the indicated airspeeds we will target so that we can calculate our true airspeeds then we can use true airspeed to calculate a ground speed true airspeed is calculated differently for the different stages of flight and it depends on what you're targeting when you fly for climb, we want to target an indicated airspeed and fly at either best rate of climb speed or best angle of climb speed. So if you've had any flight lessons and you've taken off, you know that your instructor has probably told you, I know in like a Cherokee Warrior, it was, you know, fly at 79. That was the best rate of climb speed because we just want to get up as fast as possible. That's the best rate. And, you know, in the shortest amount of time, we want to get to our altitude because we're training and time is money, right? So that's 79 knots for a Cherokee Warrior. So I'm sure, and maybe they said fly 80 or they said fly a number, like target an airspeed during your climb. So either pitch up or pitch down and try and target that airspeed indicator as you climb up. This is because you're targeting a V speed, an indicated airspeed that's gonna give you either the best rate of climb or the best angle of climb or some other value right? The best angle of climb would be you get to your altitude in the least amount of distance. Anyways, the whole point of me talking about this is that in climb, we're targeting an indicated airspeed. We're flying and pushing or pulling on the stick based off that airspeed indicator, right? So we're using that airspeed indicator. So we want to start in our cross-country planning, we want to start with that indicated airspeed that we know we're going to target. So for example, when I fly, I always target, you know, unless for some reason I need to climb in a short amount of distance, like there's some obstacles to train, I probably wouldn't risk that. But if that's what best angle of climb would be good for, but I'm always flying best rate of climb. So in a Cherokee Warrior, that's 79 knots. So I know that on all my climbs, I'm going to 
target 79.80 knots. With my yoke, I'm gonna trim to that and climb at that. So I know I'm gonna start with an indicated altitude for my climb phase of flight. So for climb phase of flight, to get to ground speed, we have to first go from indicated airspeed to calibrated airspeed, which again, we said was the same as indicated airspeed. So we go from indicated to calibrated to true airspeed, and we're gonna use our E6B for that, and then true airspeed to ground speed. Now in cruise, it's a little bit different, and we'll talk about that. So for planning cross country, we climb at the indicated altitude equal to the best rate of climb. Again, that's 79 knots for a Cherokee Warrior. So in your cross country planner, you wanna fill, you wanna make a column for indicated airspeed. And in your climb, the portions of climb, those are gonna have a value equal to the indicated airspeed you wanna target in your climb, which is probably best rate of climb. So in the Cherokee Warrior, that'd be 79. So for all the phases of climb, I put 79 in the indicated airspeed column. Now for cruise flight, the indicated airspeed is going to be blank because we're not gonna target an indicated airspeed doing cruise. For cruise flight, we're going to target a power setting. And this is, again, is probably how you're gonna be taught from your flight instructor, right? You get up to cruise, you basically are going to lean the mixture and fly at, you know, something below the red line, you know, some RPM, depending on your aircraft, that's not redlining it, you're a little bit off of that, but depending on how fast you wanna fly, it's a little bit off of that and you're gonna target, that's basically what you're looking at. You're not really so much targeting an airspeed, you're targeting a power setting when you're up at cruise setting because it's more so about you know being more efficient with your performance. So when we're up at cruise, we're targeting a power setting and we can use for cruise flight, the true airspeed can be calculated differently depending on, again, what we're targeting. For me, it's much easier to target an engine RPM than it is an indicated airspeed while in cruise flight. So therefore I target an RPM and I leave the indicated airspeed rows for cruise flight blank. And then I calculate a true airspeed based off an RPM. So I create now another column in my nav log. I have indicated airspeed and then I have RPM. So in my climb rows, I have an indicated airspeed, but I have nothing listed, just a dash, I cross it out for RPM. For cruise, I have no indicated airspeed, but I target an RPM. And then I can use my cruise performance chart to use a pressure altitude, a temperature, and my RPM for my aircraft, and that'll tell me a true airspeed. So that's how I calculate a true airspeed. So my next column is gonna be true airspeed. You know, if I'm targeting indicated airspeed, like a climb, I'm gonna use my E6B to get my true airspeed. If it's in cruise and I'm targeting RPM, I'm gonna use my cruise performance chart. That's how I found to do it best and the most accurately. That's how I like to do it. This is not the only way. You could technically target an indicated airspeed in cruise, or you could even, you know, say you're full on your full RPM climb and you could maybe do use the some other way to come up with a true airspeed for your climb. But this is how I found it best using the charts, which are what we should follow. The charts from our POH, our AFM, those are what information is available to us. If we can find a good way that is accurate and a way that we understand using those charts, it's acceptable by the examiner on your check ride. So finally, you're probably wondering like, well, what about descent? For descent, we're gonna assume it's the same as cruise. Again, we're gonna target an RPM. So in descent, right, you might learn from, your, this makes sense because your flight instructor might say, okay, we're in descent. We're gonna lower the RPM to say, I don't know, 1500 RPM, and that'll give us a nice steady descent. Or, you know, we might lower it even more than that. Whatever it is for your aircraft, but you can target a RPM and you can put that into the cruise performance chart to come up with a true airspeed. So we're gonna assume that descent is about the same as cruise for this situation, and we can target the RPM, and then we can use cruise performance to get our true airspeed. So to review, we have indicated airspeed, which is what we read off our airspeed indicator. This has errors from instrumentation, installation, and from temperature and pressure. To get rid of the instrumentation and installation errors, we can use a chart in our POH to get a calibrated airspeed to say, okay, this instrument has about this much errors at these air speeds. So here you go. You can get, get rid of those errors and convert to a calibrated airspeed. Well, this is pretty much negligible for us in the type of aircraft we fly. So we just assume indicated airspeed is the same as calibrators. Then for true airspeed, we take calibrated airspeed and we correct it for non-standard atmospheric conditions like temperature and pressure. So then once we have true airspeed, we can then apply the winds to get a ground speed. That's our goal, to end up with a ground speed. And then, so what we need right now is we need a true airspeed. For climb, we're gonna get true airspeed through an indicated airspeed because we target indicated airspeed. We know what that's gonna be during climb. 
for cruise and descent, we know we're gonna target an RPM. That's what we know. So we're gonna start with RPM. We're gonna use our cruise performance chart to get a true airspeed. That is essentially a summary of the entire lesson here. I wanted to kind of break it down into what the different airspeeds are, how they relate to each other, and how sometimes we know a certain airspeed, sometimes we don't. So how we can plan for that in our calculations going forward. I know this is a lot, but the more you do it, the easier it'll get. And that's why we also, in our course, we have a cross-country planning checklist that talks about all these things. So you can just follow the checklist every time you're cross-country planning. It makes things a lot easier. All right, so that is lesson, what was that? Lesson 10 on airspeeds. It's a good summary of the airspeeds and how we're gonna use them going forward. So in our next episode, in lesson 11, we're gonna talk about just like what we just alluded to calculating airspeed during climb from a indicated airspeed to a true airspeed using our e6b and then lesson 12 we're going to calculate airspeed during cruise and descent again starting with that rpm using our cruise performance chart to get a true airspeed all right and then after that we got our true airspeeds for every single leg of our flight we have winds for every single leg of our flight we have our courses so now we can use the wind side of our e6b to calculate our ground speed and our magnetic heading and from there we're set up to get our time and from there we can get how much fuel we're going to use for our flight so we're almost there you guys we got a few more lessons for the cross-country planning hang in there if you have any questions feel free to reach out team at parttimepilot.com and thank you guys for listening i'll catch you later hey pilots this is nick again did you guys know that part-time pilot now has a private pilot test prep book that you can buy on Amazon. It's a physical book that you can buy on Amazon to help prep for your FAA written exam. So it's like the other test prep books out there, you know, the Jepson, Asa, or the Gleam, Glime, however you pronounce it. It's just like those, but I called ours the ultimate private pilot test prep because not only does it give you a synopsis of each subject, like the Cliff Notes, like those other books do, and then it gives you FAA written questions to practice and quiz yourself on to, to prep for the test, but it also goes much, much further, and that's why we call it the ultimate private pilot test prep book. So for each subject, it also has has a QR code so that as you're reading it, if you want more information, you can scan the QR code on your phone or your tablet and it will immediately pull up a YouTube video that you can watch on the subject. There's also QR codes in there for additional downloads including FAA, PDFs, subject area checklists, and more PDFs from us that you can download for free. It also includes a coupon code and QR code where you can go enroll in online practice tests for free and receive the PDF version of the book completely free. All that is with simple, easy to use QR codes inside the book. And then we also, not only does it have the cliff notes of all the information, but it also includes mnemonic devices and visual aids, such as diagrams, tables, and images that are labeled, such as like a METAR that is labeled every single thing that is included and deciphered in the METAR or a TAF. Also the performance charts, step-by-step -step labeled steps on performance calculation charts so it's not just cliff note bullet points it's that plus much much more these visual aids all in 404 pages in the ultimate private pilot test prep book and it is only 37 dollars so you can go check that out on amazon i'll put a link in the show notes so go check it out Hey pilots, this is Nick. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you may have heard us talk about core aviation headsets and how with the coupon code part-time pilot, you can get 10% off and free shipping. Well, I just wanted to let you know that that got better. You can now get 15% off and free shipping. So an extra 5% off on core aviation headsets. These are a fantastic beginner headset. Now I say beginner just because they are at a beginner price. You know, when we're starting off with flight training, we want to keep all our funds for flight training because it is so expensive. And this gives us that affordable option to do that. But then it's not exactly a beginner headset because I have still had my core aviation headsets that I got way back when, when I was a student pilot. It's almost five years ago. It's still working great and I've had zero problems with it. So with that 15% off now, use coupon code part-time pilot. I'll put a link in the show notes. But with 
that, you get 50% off, you get free shipping. You can get your very own headset for, I think, less than $100 still. So, and Or you can get their more advanced headset for less than $200. That is a steal, and it is way better than sharing those sweaty old headsets that have issues and connection issues at your flight school. So go ahead and check out Core Aviation Headsets and use code PARTTIMEPILOT. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot now of course it's not that we're not thinking but it's that we understand things like weather aerodynamics what our instruments are telling us what atc is telling us we have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them and when we don't have to think about them we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations if we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gained, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working so most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job we have kids we have family we have school we have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training and most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you and so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot well the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting you want to avoid being boring you want to avoid that burnout so how we do that is we present our material in multiple multiple ways and you're actually listening to one of them right now you can consume our content 
via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic, again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read. So for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos, or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.